0: In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, Thank you, Lord, again, for the gift of our life, for your presence with us through the day, for our church. um, We would not be here. We would not be here together if it weren't for our faith. Um, One part of it that's open for us is the prayers that we offer for each other. I ask a special prayer for those of us who struggle with pride or stubbornness. I don't think that's just me but for all of us who are, um, grant a grace please to all of us. Let us take a joy in the work that we do together. Um, One of the things that we're learning from Virgil and certainly one of the things that we'll learn from Boethius is that we will never become who we are unless we put ourselves away. Somehow step back from ourselves to learn to give ourselves not making ourselves an issue Um, help us each in our own ways to do that to offer ourselves to be with you to bring you to the world Um, ask a blessing on all of us particularly where there are burdens I know most of us carry them particularly in our families where there are burdens um, help us always to remember that you're next to us Um, you're never not there even if we don't see you. um, That should give us a strength. So strengthen us please in our trust in you, our faith in you, no matter how grave the burdens are, um, to do everything we can um, to stay with you. Strengthen in us a spirit of um, boldness, of courage, help us to take you to the world, and in humility so that we're not doing it for ourselves, getting ourselves out of the way. And always um, strengthen us in our efforts to be open to these poets, these men who've stepped back from the world to help us see something that so often we don't see. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. In the, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You started in that. Time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to read a poem we've already read. Um, and I'm doing it for two reasons. One is because at St. Francis last night, I, um, I started the Auden poem, you remember, that's structured on, on the canonical hours, the, um, the Hore Canonicae, the canonical hours of the monastic life, the monastic life. It's, a, it's a, a really good poem, and it's modern, so I, I want to stay with it. I'm, I'm going to stay with it. But I didn't want to read it last night. We were um, trying to finish up Billy Budd. Uh, we're going to do something different in the next couple of weeks in the Francis Group, because we're, we're not going to do any reading. We're going to try to put a whole, God, a whole four or five years together over a couple of weeks and talk about some of the deeper concerns that have touched us. And, um, but I didn't want to read Auden's poem, so um, I didn't. And I want to try to keep the two classes together. I'm going to go back to that Auden poem next week. And I'm going to th- go through it. If you remember from a reading last week, it goes through the canonical hours from Prime to um, um, to the Compline at the end of the hour. So you go through the different hours of the day. I put it on the, in our box so it should be available. You can print it off hard copy. I want to go through that for the next several weeks um, and take each section because it's just too long to do in one evening but I don't want to do it tonight because I'm, I'm I'm off with Francis. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to do Aeneas at Washington again and I've had it on my mind most of the day when I when I thought about what we're going to look at with Aeneas today because when Aeneas goes to um, Evander, we'll get there tonight, Evander takes him to a place in the woods and explains to him the history of Rome. And he's going to go back to that time when Saturn, who was forced out of heaven in exile, and and came and founded something. And as Aeneas looks at all of these things, he's looking at a forest world. It's an undeveloped world. But he's seeing things that are one day going to turn into the capital, the rock, the you know, all of the modern sites that we know and that Virgil would have known in his time. So we're seeing two time periods juxtaposed against each other. Rome as we know it today and Rome before it all got built into structures. Um, And I, I, I think it's an extraordinary moment because it's a reminder that history's layered. One of the things that we're learning from Virgil is we just can't stay on the surface. We've got to say that whatever, we've got to see that whatever's on the surface is revealing something below. If we're going to be good readers, we've got to learn to see there's more there. It's one of the things we've been focusing on the last couple of weeks. So I wanted to take Tate's poem once again, Aeneas at Washington, and read it again, and I'll refer to it when we get to that point in Virgil. But I'd like you to hear it again, because this is Alan Tate, who's a modern, he's a contemporary, just died in our time, who was well-educated, who was... Um, a great poet, a, one I think one of the greatest critics of the 20th century, um, who wrote this poem, Aeneas at Washington. Okay. It's his way of looking at our country aware that something's happening to our country that's destroying it um, in a way that reminds him of Troy um, and the building of a new city which for him would have been America. And I'm reading it today, trusting that everybody today will know we're in trouble, that we are facing um, threats and dangers that really have as their aim to flatten America, to destroy it, to get rid of everything from the past, to clean it, and start over. Okay, so this is Alan Tate, at Washington. I myself saw furious with blood Neoptolemus at his side, the black Atridae Hecuba and the hundred daughters. Priam cut down, his filth drenching the holy fires. And we went through that scene, remember when, we, when Aeneas was recounting the destruction of Troy, and that episode when he watched Priam and his wife Hecuba cut down um, by Aeneas' son, Ptolemus, Okay. That was graphically described, this old king just brutally killed. And it's, it's Achilles' son. In that extremity I bore me well, a true gentleman. This is a southern. And if you know from the south that the old history until modern time was to raise gentlemen, to help young men become gentlemen. In that extremity I bore me well, a true gentleman, valorous in arms, disinterested and honorable. All southern things. Then fled, that was a time when civilization, run by the few, fell to the many. The democracy took over. And crashed to the shout of men, clang of arms. Cold victualizing, I seized. I hoisted up that old man, my father, upon my back in the smoke made by sea for a new world, saving little, a mind imperishable if time is, a love of past things tenuous as the hesitation of receding love, something passing away. And we're aware of it in the moment. So the reduction of unsighted literals, you know, all those things close to the shoreline, is, picture Aeneas going from island to island to island, um, shoreline to shoreline. To the reduction of unsighted literals we brought chiefly the vigor of prophecy, our hunger, breeding, calculation, and fixed triumphs. Look what we're gonna do. We come to this country to accomplish these great things. We set out. There's nothing but promise ahead of us. I saw the thirsty dove in the glowing fields of Troy, hemp ripening and tawny corn, the thickening blue grass all lying rich forever in the green sun. I see all things apart, the towers that men contrive, I too contrived, long, long ago. Now I demand little. The singular passion abides its object and consumes desire in the circling shadow of its appetite. It's what we most immediately want that holds us to the point, whatever it happens to be, day by day. There was a time when the young eyes were slow, their flames steady beyond the first lean fire. I stood in the rain, far from home at nightfall, by the to- Tolmac. Tole- 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 the great dome lit the water the city my blood had built. I knew no more, while the screech-owl whistled his new delight, consecutively dark. Stuck in the, met- the wet mire, four thousand leagues from the ninth buried city, I thought of Troy, what we had built her for. Troy was destroyed. Okay? Nobody builds a city without great hope. We built America and we came here with um, a great belief in what we could do as a country. Troy was destroyed. Troy was destroyed. So that's very much at the heart of what we're doing with Virgil, okay? So, let me let me let me start on Virgil. Um, just a quick review, if I can. Last time we met, um, we were with Aeneas when he entered the underworld, and he met with a sibyl because he'd been told that he'd have to go to the underworld to to receive his calling from his father. Yeah, you know, remember Odysseus went to the underworld too. The difference is, Aeneas goes there trusting that Anchises will give him his prophecy or his calling so the first time he'll get clear on it and we read those passages Um, anchises does tell him your goal as a roman will be to beat down the proud you know to bring peace to the world all of those things so for the first time he seems to get some clarity he knows for sure what he's to do and he gets that from the underworld from the dead because we know that he's been going from founding to founding to founding and failure to failure misunderstanding the gods. He's not getting it right. Day by day he's suffering, he's trying to do everything he can but it's not turning out right. That's where we left, okay? Now uh, for a minute I just I want to put this in perspective. I, I know when we started the class I presented this to you but I'm gonna do it again because it's so relevant at this point. Remember when we started uh, with um, Merchant of Venice, start with Merchant of Venice. One of my major concerns was to present the paradigm of the city, what the city is, and I suggested that it's it's an important um, paradigm for us because it identifies who we are and what we're doing. Basically, um, cities are not just cities. If we read the Bible, we learn that when God exiled Cain. Um, Cain had to go out of God's presence; he had to leave him, and his son Enoch founded the first city. Now that's really important. That's in Genesis. Okay, it's not a scientific account; that's biblical. Cain or Enoch founded the first city, so the first city, in one sense, represents man's attempt to live without God. To be autonomous, to create his own world, because before that, remember, in Eden, we were in a garden together with God. We don't know what that was like. I mean, we, we, what we know is that it was perfect. Adam and Eve's love for each other was complete because they loved God. But once they disobeyed Him, that's that's the origins. Every other sin comes from that one sin, our disobedience of God. That's our original sin. That's the one sin that leads to murder, adultery, you name it. Cain is exiled. God tells nobody to hurt him. He puts a a mark on him, and his son founds the first city. So the first city comes into existence in an effort to be autonomous. Um, Self-sufficient, I think is probably the best word, because I think that that's the one that speaks most of us. We try to be self-sufficient, not depend on anybody. And it's in that spirit of pride that most of the bad things that we do come. because in our origins, we were meant to be one with God, one with each other. When we get the divine comedy, we're going to see as Dante and Beatrice approach God, they start indwelling. They're one with each other. They're still distinct. It's Dante Beatrice. It's two human beings, but they as they grow closer to God, um, they grow more one with each other okay So the city has always been very paradoxical in, in one sense it's it's the emblem of everything great that man can do. It, it's the exemplar. it's this is man can create a cosmos for himself. So when you go to New York and you watch the skyline, you look at it and you, you stare at it and wonder and th- and watch watch look at the New York skyline and then watch a plane going into the sky. And you look at that stuff and say, holy cow, that man could do this. That, that a human being is capable of doing something this great. So on the one hand, the city is the expression of the very greatest that we can do. That's, it shows how complete we can create a world for ourselves. Okay. Um, terrorists come in, destroy the Twin Towers, and people lose it. And suddenly we realize we're not as invulnerable as we think we are. That all the things that we build in our pride can be destroyed. That was the great subject of the Iliad, the very first work of the tradition. That's where we went a while ago. That all these great accomplishments are almost as nothing. Um, So the city is the great focus of Virgil's work. Um, After Troy is destroyed those who are defeated go on to build a new city. And what we've learned so far through the first six books is every effort to found a city fails. Aeneas fails again and again and again and again. And what we're learning is what's wrong with each city betrayals, greed, lust. You know, too much power. Um, he's with Dido for a year. It's a it's a illicit relationship. She's betrayed her vows to her husband. After he died, she said she'd never marry again. So we're learning about human frailty. You know? But Aeneas is called on, called on to, to go, sorry, called on to go on to found the city. So Virgil, I think, here, here's the point. I mean, this is the for me, it's I for me, it's the major point of the Aeneid. Virgil was the one person more than Plato, more than Aristotle, more than Homer, who saw that the very greatest thing man could do was the city. And he's showing a man being called on by the divine order, by the gods, to create the city that's unlike every other city. And it will be. It'll be different from every other city. It'll be more universal. It'll be eternal. Those are the words. We'll, we'll, I'm, we're going to get to them tonight and next week. It's the universal eternal city. It will not die. All the other cities are Babylon, Egypt, Alexandria. They'll die. And in some sense, Rome may die, but Rome, as Virgil understands, will not. So the, one of the most important things to see here is that Virgil understands, um, and we've seen it again and again in every one of our chapters, that he, this man has been called on to come out of a defeat and bring something good out of it. So the whole perspective is not from the, those who conquered. It's not Achilles and Odysseus. It's from one of the survivors, so he's showing us that out of defeat can come this great thing, but the cost of it is extraordinary. It's constant self-sacrifice. That's what Virgil's showing us. So what Virgil's showing us is that man is not enough. I want to. Um, I'm last week when we looked at the uh, land of the dead, the underworld. If you remember, when the Sibyl was taking. Aeneas, through the underworld, we kept seeing these men, e- even with his father, when his father was pointing out these Romans, remember they're at the stream of Lethe, the river? They're all drinking because they're going to return to the world. If, if you remember the scenes, they're all mutilated. They're cut up. They're all soldiers. They're, they died at war, heroically, fighting for their country. They're going to drink from Lethe, they're going to be made whole again, and return to the world. For what? They're going to go to war again. We saw that with Jupiter's prophecy in the very beginning and we're going to see it when Juno presents Aeneas with his arms tonight when we look at when she gives him his armor just the way um, what was Thet- um, Thetis, uh, um, Achilles' mother when she gave him his armor it's going to be very very different um, but it's going to show Roman history what's going to consist what's going to make up Roman history war after war after war after war after war that every time man thinks he's created this great thing and he's going to be able to live independently of God, he's going to create this self-sufficient city and bring peace to the world. What Virgil shows us is, it's not going to happen. That the cost of going back will be mutilations, destruction, fire, raping, pillage, wars. So there, the reason I'm saying I'm not I'm not trying to load up on a the 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 point, sorry, the the point I want to make here is this. Homer didn't go this deep. Plato, Aristotle, not all the great philosophers, not all the great poets. Virgil is the one man who saw that the most complete thing for the human being was this this world that he could create for himself. And as great as it was, it could never be enough that something else was wanted. So it's amazing to... For me to read him, and remember he, he had this prophecy in the fourth ecologue where he talks about this child who's going to come into the world. I think he got that from Isaiah. So that while he's showing this great city, he knows more than anybody. He feels, he feels the pain of it. I think far more than Homer, certainly far more than Plato or Aristotle. That the cost of living in this world is suffering. So everything he does is pointing towards Christ. Something not yet. And the city that's not yet, Christ will reveal as the new Jerusalem, but not here. So it's it's one of the most magnificent images of the greatness of man. The extraordinary thing, and I want to underline this here: the extraordinary thing about Virgil, I don't think anybody has faced the pain of the world more than he, who did not despair, who continued to show that he just did not flinch. He continued to show the cost of living in this world was suffering, and made us aware that there was still something more. So I think that's one of the great themes of the, of the Aeneid, the way in which he takes that whole Homeric world, and carries it forward in an amazing way that anticipates Christ. Okay, let me stop for a moment. Any that that to me is such a. It, to me, it's some ways the largest theme of the year, but let me stop because to me it's so big and I don't know if that's too much. Do you guys have any questions about that or um, comments to make? Connie? No? Such a pleasure to see your faces. Such a pleasure to you see you guys.
1: You'll be happy, but I did find the book for three dollars.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you when I'll be happy. I'll be happy when you pick out a passage of that and read it to your grandson when you're putting your grandson to sleep or who, you know.
1: All right, I'll let you know.
0: <laughs> Where did you get that for three dollars? Wherever you got it, I want to go there.
1: Half price books.
0: Half price online.
1: No, no, it's a store. It's, it's called Half Price Books. Where? They're, they're all over the place. Where? Uh, they're all Half price, price Books. They're all over the oh, place. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's on 377? Yeah, there's one on 377.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that because... Um, actually, I've got some embarrassing stories to tell about me. and, and, <laughs> and uh, Don't talk to Suzanne about this, but... I mean, cold's all over my head about taking books I've had and going back... To, But, you know, I've just been so aware in the last 20 years that bookstores disappear. I mean, everybody's online today, and I just am so sorry we can't go to old, used bookstores anymore. Because it was a a good place for people to go. Do you guys have any questions about what this theme of the city, how important it is? No? Melody, did you have something?
2: Well, I was thinking, um, and this is different from what you were thinking about, but um, when Odysseus went on his adventures and learned what he learned, you know, from all the different cultures and people that he met, it was all for his own self-interest to fix things at home. But Aeneas has gone on these adventures. Adventures and is learning from his failures, learning from all these places. But it's because that's going to—it's going to help him build this better society by learning from all these places. The reason all of these people are fighting is because their tribes and tribes—you know—just like to um, stick with what they know. They don't like to reach out, and so Aeneas, by reaching out to all these different places and learning from them and people, he's going to be able to unite them better because he's bringing all of this knowledge with him. And so unlike Odysseus, who only solved his own problems, Aeneas is going to solve the problems of a, a large group of people because yeah. of his experiences.
0: Yeah. yeah, let me, yes, yes, I'm, I'm so glad, um, so glad for what you just said and proud of you. Um, and I'm, I'm because you brought in another work. I mean, it's good to put two things next to each other. Let me try to, um, 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 if I can, reframe it um, um, to, tr- to try to be just to both of them. I don't. I don't. When I when I in, in their own terms. I mean, I'm trying to read David and Kay. <laughs> yes. I'm so used to seeing your name and never seeing that I just all I can say is it's a pleasure <laughs> to see your faces again. I miss it in the room. So suddenly to see you here. I, it's like two human beings are present finally. Anyway, it's good to see you. Genuinely good to see you. Um,
2: I, yes, I thought uh, 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 Aeneas had a sense of duty. He had a mission to accomplish and that echoes to what Christ said that I came to this world to do the will of my father.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. Is what I, you
2: know, kind of relate.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes to both of you. Let me try to rephrase this a little bit if I can, Um, building on the good of what you both just said. David and Kay, come back here. (laughs) Don't, Don't disappear. You come back here, even if you're not talking. Come back here. Um... There. Stay stay there. <laughs> um, in your bodies, so I can see you in your bodies. Um, I would never say that Odysseus is, is um, driven by self-centered motives. He wants to get home to his family. He's doing everything he can. And um, what Homer's showing us is that he's learning to deal with archetypes that will bring him out of himself. These are realities so I don't think there's anything self-serving or um, unheroic but it's a different world he's it's a idealized world he's dealing with archetypes forms that's Plato's the forms the original forms of things with Aeneas um, you've got a man giving himself and my way of describing it would be the world is larger for him and smaller Sorry for the paradox. Aeneas is in a world of time. Um, old people die. They get wrinkles in their face. In the Greek world, it's an idealized world. It tends to idealize the efforts of Achilles and Odysseus. In, in Virgil's world, he's more rooted in time. People suffer. Aeneas has that affair with Dido. It, it crushes him. It crushes her. She takes her life. He's going to meet her in the underworld and she's going to spurn him. He, he, he just carries a grief from having to leave her. She won't hear it. She walks away. In the Virgilian world, we're, we're more rooted in time and the ravages of time. The way that dying cities, cities die. But it's also a larger world. That there's something beyond the family or the city, Ithaca. You know, the marriages in, for Odysseus. There's something larger and more mysterious that he's asked to give himself up for. So it's not an immediate Penelope, Telemachus, Ithaca. It's Rome with some awareness that there's something more that he'll never see. So in one sense, he is in, as, I, as I look at it, he's, he's one step closer to Christ, who, sa- you know, who says, here I am, in me you see the Father, the New Jerusalem is, we're supposed to live as if it's here. That's our call. New Jer- When we take the Eucharist, we're in Christ's kingdom. He's with us, we're with him. But while it's true in one sense, it's still yet to come. So there's, there's an element to the Virgil's world that is complete in the way it takes that Greek world forward, um, does justice to it while showing it's lacking. There's something more. The suffering required for it is greater. Um, Achilles and Odysseus both suffer. They're heroic men in their own worlds. Um, I don't think we should take anything with They're just both great men. But there's a a a greater depth of reverence. There's a greater depth of something close to holiness. That there's something more. It asks for a greater self-sacrifice. Um, um, Aeneas is far more aware of his men. He does not want to lose anybody. He does not want to put people at risk. There's just a sense of a larger good and in that sense I think it's closer to what we would know as Catholicism that it's everybody. We're all here. James Joyce's word is that what's Catholic... Catholic? everybody's here. What was his phrase? Here comes everybody Here comes everybody. James Joyce's words were here comes everybody <laughs> we're all here I, if you I, I, I've referred to this movie before if you've all seen the movie Gladiator, when the woman comes out at the end after what's Martius or I can't remember the hero's name when he dies, what's his name? Do you guys remember Maximus Maximus when Maximus dies at the end, he finally answers the corruption of the emperor kills him and then he dies the woman comes out and says, um, is Rome, is Rome worth one good man's life? We used to believe that once. Now prove it. Because it had gotten corrupt again for the wealthy, you know. Um, what's it, remember the the image of Rome is the 30 pigs, or the, the pig with the 30 piglets. It's for what's common and ordinary. Every ordinary man is worth living for, not for what's better. You know, eugenics and birth control and trying to do away with his, with what is an ideal or what we would want. As human beings, we're asked to suffer our nature. Christ, Christ came down to suffer for all of us when we did not deserve it. We're asked to do the same for people who don't deserve it. He didn't ask us not to fight. We're supposed to fight for all of this. We're supposed to fight for justice. But we're called to bring a love to it that the world didn't know before he came. My argument here is that Virgil is approaching that. It's amazing to see how close he gets to it. Okay? Um, okay, any, any more questions on this image of the city, how important it is? Okay, um, we've talked about the major themes, the theme of, of translation of having to take that Greek world and transform it, carry it forward. Not 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 leaving it behind. Not dismissing, it. I mean, you know, you you watch this today with all the wanting to take down the statues, destroy say level it, burn it to the ground, get rid of it. Virgil's not saying that. He's he's saying carry the past forward. Learn from it. It's part of who you are. But it's the basis for doing something better. So, this whole theme of translating the past, carrying the past forward, transforming it, redeeming as he goes, that's an act of suffering constantly. That's an act of Christ in the world actively transforming, I mean, hopefully, each one of us if we're trying to live with him. So, that this theme of Translating or transferring, carrying forward. The affair with Dido was, remember, in in one sense that's a it's an anticipation of the of the Punic Wars. That Virgil is showing us is that we cannot we cannot escape the consequences of the past. We have to bear them, and try to change them as we go forward. If we have an alcoholic father or you know whatever, I mean we we have to do something to, to try to help transform that, make it better. Not, not get swallowed up by it, but carry it forward, knowing that it can be a help for us to do something better if we do. So this theme of carrying things forward. Um, remember we reached that point last time when Aeneas was leaving the Greek world. Um, he had buried his father. He went back to perform the funeral games and then went on to Rome. It's then that he lost Palinurus. Remember, he was the pilot of the fleet. Palinurus did nothing wrong. He comes to Italy, and there he meets with a civil who takes him into the underworld. From there, he's going to go north to the Tiber River. And it's then on his way that he passes by um, um, Circe. And it's really interesting. This is so important. He doesn't stop. He's not trapped by Circe. And yet... Circe's close to Rome. It's Virgil's way of saying that's a constant temptation. That's sexual allure. And it's there that he loses his wife, um, I'm sorry, his uh, nurse, Caeda. So over and over and over and over again, um, Aeneas is having to experience his loss and defeat, having to give something up. So that when he arrives, I really, this is another piece of evidence um, for wondering whether he didn't read Exodus in the Old Testament. That after all these wanderings, all this suffering, um, a people had to learn to turn away from a past. They had to learn to give it up in order to go on to this new thing. So when we think about Rome today, for those of us who are Catholic or Christians, Rome's not just a city; it's not just like any. It's not like Beijing or Alexandria or Egypt or Babylon. This was the city that that actually was being prepared for Christ's coming. Virgil didn't know that, but when you watch what Virgil's doing with it and see what this city is, what makes up its character, compare Rome with Carthage. When Dido didn't get what she wanted, she killed herself. It's an act of spite. She didn't want to face those men. She would It's an act of pride. She didn't want to face those men she spurned before. So now when she loses him, she takes her life. So when you put all the the Aeneity, Buthrotrum, when you put all those cities together and then go to Rome, there's no way to miss that this is not just a city like any other city. And here's the crucial thing. When people start talking about comparative religions, so they start lining Christ up with Buddhist Buddhism, or you know Hinduism, or Zoroastrianism, or whatever religion they do, they're missing. Christianity is not a religion like any other religion. It's not. It's sui generis. Do you all know what that word is. Sui generis. S U I. Sui. sui generis? It's a thing in itself. There is no other re- No other religion that has a a man coming down, who claims he's God, who has only one purpose in mind. He goes to his death. Buddha doesn't do that, Gandhi doesn't do that, Hindu doesn't do that. If you start looking at comparative religions and they start re- lining up like Christianity's just one among other religions, I mean, they're missing the point. There's no other religion in the world that has a man coming down saying he's actually God and he's gonna atone for our sins. And there's one thing he's gonna do. He's headed towards the cross. You I know, mean, on the way, he, you know, he does a lot to help us understand things. but. Rome is like that. Rome is not another city. There, however corrupt it is today, however much like other cities, at its founding, it introduced into the world, from Virgil's perspective, the very greatest thing that man could accomplish and still fail. The Aeneid will end with Aeneas killing Turnus it ends on a death the city is not going to make everything okay it's not going to make everything all right it's an image of something in man being called to put himself away to die for the sake of something greater and it go in that sense it goes way beyond the iliad and the odyssey okay Okay, I'd like to turn to the works if we can, if you guys, unless you've got a question about all of this. Any questions? You guys okay? Mary Jane, you home again? I see pictures behind you. Are you home? Yeah. um okay um give me if you can give me one minute and i'll be right back can you just i'll be right back can you just for a second can you say
2: hello? i don't know where he's going yeah <laughs> now, now a word from our sponsor right <laughs> how are you guys all doing good Going into good. fall. That's good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nicer outside. Nicer outside. Yeah.
2: Cooler evenings. Shorter evenings. Sun goes down a little earlier. I'm glad. <laughs> oh. I like the long days. Oh. My, my saddest day is September what, 21st, 21st or 22nd when it starts to get um shorter days again. Oh, see I yeah. like I June. celebrate that day. <laughs> I'm so done with summer by that time. <laughs> oh. Are you guys enjoying Aeneas? Yeah. I am I, we've I've gotten to the part where all it is is fighting and I'm not as crazy about that, but that's why I like the Odyssey so much more, is because he actually did adventures that didn't involve splitting you? someone's head into, oh. you know. Yeah. yeah. But but it's good. Good. My favorite of the three epics. Yeah.
0: My words for you are you, big wimp. <laughs> I'm not crazy about all this fighting. We've been together all this time, and that's the best you can say about fighting, men fighting.
2: You know, I'm married Odysseus, like I said, so I love him. And I don't know; but these other guys are fine.
0: They're good. God, I love you guys. <coughs> it's just a pleasure to hear. Here, let's let's pick up where we left off, okay? Um, let's let's go to um, let's pick up at the end of book seven, can we? I'd I'd like to try to get through book nine tonight, and um, it, it means skipping a lot. Um, a couple of things bef- um, before we, um, remember that when the Sybil took, wait, wait, a couple of things. Remember when, when Aeneas comes to the uh, cave, Cumae, um, he sees the, the story of the Minotaur there in the walls. And I would suggested last week that I, I don't think we're supposed to pass that by and just treat it as a piece of artwork. That what Virgil's giving us is a sort of allegorical um, picture of something that's about to happen. So, and the major story on that door into the underworld is the story of the Minotaur. And you remember that um, Poseidon gave um, Minos, Minos, the king of um, Cyprus. This um, beautiful bull, um, and his wife Peisophai fell in love with it, and she asked Daedalus, who was an artist, an artist, to construct a box like a bull, and she entered into it and mated with this bull, and the product of it was the Minotaur. And um, Poseidon um, was furious at Minos because. He was supposed to sacrifice that bull to give it up, but he was so enamored of it that he kept it, and then his wife did what she did. So we've got an interesting story of a a man failing to give a sacrifice to the gods, um, to this beautiful thing, and and it's an image of brute power. And the wife becoming so enamored of it that she wants to mate with it and produces the minotaur. And, And you know that the minotaur is at the center of this labyrinth, and that um, Minos exacts sacrifices from the Athenians um, as a payment for not attacking them. Um, so seven young men and women are sacrificed yearly to the Minotaur. It's only when Theseus goes in there that, and kills the Minotaur that they're relieved of that, and it's Adri- Ariadna who gives him the thread to get out. And it's one of, it's one of Theseus's great feats. But I, I, I don't want to go into the myth of the... the the point that I'd like to, or the question that I'd le- like to leave with everybody is, how much of that image of the labyrinth is an image of what Aeneas, excuse me, is about to face in Rome? Do we find it in Latinus, Amma to his wife, and the Turnus, the other figures, and even in Aeneas and his own son? Because if you, if you recall the story, you remember that um, um, Daedalus, was the artisan who helped um, his um, get out of the labyrinth, and he made it. He gave his son wings, and his son flew too high, too close to the sun, and was destroyed. So, in a lot of ways, it's 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 an allegory suggesting this um, excessive love of brute power at the center of man's consciousness. So, if we look at the labyrinth as an image of consciousness. At the center, of it is this um, inordinate lust. Remember, um, after the fall, the love that we directed to God gets turned towards ourselves. And and think about it. If we're capable of creating a city, I'm going to put this as starkly as I can. If we're capable of creating a great city like New York, with the Twin Towers, whatever, what's the image, the correlative, image that corresponds to that in the way of evil. Is that clear? If we can create something this great, what image shows how foul we can become at its opposite extreme? Is that clear? I think what I'm trying to do is justify that image of the minotaur. You mean we could pass it off and say, oh, nothing. What I'm suggesting is that minotaur image and pacifia, the the wife, the lust she had for it, are an image of something real in the human psyche, those are the depths of it. I'm not Freudian, I, I, I think what Freud did is awful myself, but but I do believe in these things, that I think that that at the opposite of end of these extraordinary things we can do are these this great capacity for evil, for disorders. So my question is, is this image of the labyrinth an image of something that Aeneas has got to face as one of the conditions for going on to found Rome. If it is, then we are way past the Homeric world. We're into into a world of dark, dark dangers. And we know that that's gonna be true because immediately in the next chapter, we're gonna see Juno go to Electo, and you know that Electo, that, that Fury figure, is going to um, take possession of Amada, Tynas' wife, He's, um, she's going to take possession of Turnus, and things are going to get dark. She is as close to an image of something demonic that I know in the pre Christian world. She, she, is, she is a powerful figure for destruction. So, my question here you know, when, when Aeneas goes into the underworld and we get this Daedalus figure, are, are we being given an image of something that he's going to face, and interestingly, his son? Because Daedalus was the artist who could get out of the maze. That's why James Joyce took, uh, made his, his creation Stephen Daedalus. That's the name of his hero and portrait of an artist, Stephen Daedalus. The artist is the one who can help us out of the maze. Um, his son flew too high to the sun and burnt his wings and in, fell into the ocean and died. Is it a warning against Ascanius that he not try to do too much? That he be careful of his own pride. If he lets his pride get in the way, it could hurt because he's got to carry on his father's mission. So there's lots going on in that cave. Okay, is that as Aeneas goes forward? So, you remember he went through the cave. We saw these. Um, it's far more differentiated than Homer's world. The, the 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 field of the morning, Tartarus, and the evil spirits, and then the land of the blessed. The, you know, we see lots of different areas where. People are um, as a reflection of what they did on the world. So there's a, a much closer correspondence between what they did in the world and where they end up in the, in the afterlife. Finally he comes to his father Ascanius, and he gives him his, his calling. We, we went there. We did that. We looked at that last week. But I want to go to the end, because when Aeneas leaves, now he's, seen, he's received his mission from his father. He's watched the men go to the river Lethe to drink the liver, the river of forgetfulness. So when they return to the world, there will be this subterranean memory of something going on. All of us have it. This, we carry Eden and the fall in us. Jung, the psychologist Jung, would have said that. <coughs> and then he leaves to go to these two gates to, ent- to re-enter the world. The two gates are described as the gates of ivory and the gates of horn. Okay. The gates of ivory, the most beautiful piece, are the gates of illusions and dreams, false dreams. And the gates of horn are, is the gate into reality. Aeneas has to choose between them, and he chooses, this is on page 191 in our book, um, he chooses this one, and I just want to take a minute to get your thoughts on it. There are two gates of sleep, one said to be of horn, whereby the true shades pass with ease. True shades pass. The other all white ivory agleam without a flaw. And yet false dreams are sent through this one by the ghosts to the upper world. And Chises, now his last instructions given, took his son and Sybil there and let them go by the ivory gate. And he has made his way straight to the ships to see his crew again, then sail directly to Keita's port, bow anchors out, the stern's rest on the beach. That's when he loses his nurse Cada. But here he goes through the um, um, the gates of Ivory. Remember, the guy, the gates of Ivory are the f- gates of the fall streams. The gates of Horn, the uglier one is the What any thoughts about this? Why does he go through the gates of Ivory? Of the two gates it's the most attractive, it's the most beautiful but it's also the gates of false dreams. And let me put this more darkly. He's going to return to the world to carry out his quest. He's got to found Rome, but he passes into that world through the gates of ivory. Any thoughts on that? Heather. What's your thought on that?
1: Um I don't know. It's interesting that he chooses he chooses that gate. I don't I don't know. If it's uh, Yeah, I'm you've got me on that one.
0: Well, don't feel alone. I, mean, I think the whole world is hung on those two gates. But by the way, one in the Auden poem that we're going to read, in the prime, in the opening section of the Auden, I'll, we'll come to it next week, he talks about it, what he's describing is that moment of waking to a day and coming out of slumber and emerging from the gates of horn and ivory. Um, but anyway, Sue, you have any thoughts on it? I, I don't want to press it. If Any thoughts before we go on?
1: Well, it it occurs to me that he has been given his calling, and that calling is very important to found Rome. But the city still will lack, and to found it and to go through all he has to go through and take his men through all they have to go through. Maybe he needs some dreams that are slightly false, because if he knew the truth, he might not be able to 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 do all of that.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's a. a later good i don't
0: know that's a guess yeah it that's always raises yeah i'm yeah i'm glad for what you said it always raises for me what would be the true dream because yeah. when he goes into the world you know he um he's going to go in with all these hopes of founding the city and the cost of it is going to be nothing but carnage you know so if that's the false dreams that somehow they're carrying some what 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 in the world would the, wood, would the world look like in you know, in terms of passing through the ivory gates it's just a mystery to me but okay let's let's go on in chapter 7 when aeneas comes to latium we learn that a, a prophecy has been given that lavinia uh, the king's daughter will marry a foreigner and uh, Amada, the wife, is outraged at that. It's, it's it's the first signs of the racial prejudice that we're going to meet there. Tur- um, 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 Electo, the fury, is going to enter her and and um, turn the the love of a mother into um, rage. The idea that Turnus or her daughter would marry somebody other than Turnus is such an outrage. She she becomes furious. Um, Aeneas comes and. He and Latinus the king make a treaty, um, and so everything looks promising. Um, when um, let's see, in, in page two hundred, when they're one ninety nine, turn to one ninety nine. When the when the men are sitting there, they've arrived at the at at the their destination without fully knowing it yet. A tr- treatise has been struck by Latinus and Aeneas. So everything is promising at this point. The men are sitting down to eat on 199, and then Ascanius is looking at the meals before them because they've been put, on, I think, on these sort of leaf and platters. He says, look how we've devoured our tables even. Elias playfully said and said no more, for that remark as soon as heard had meant the end of wandering. Even as it fell from the speaker's lips, his father caught it, stop the jesting there struck by the word work of heaven and said at once, a blessing on the land. Because remember the harpy, Solano said when the when the um, Trojans attacked them and were eating the cattle, um, that you will be home when you're eating your tables. It sounds ridiculous, but when Ascanius or I mean sorry, when Ilius makes this remark, everybody realizes they're home. Now just for a minute, I want to just underscore this if I can. It's really interesting to me that the turn in the Odyssey occurs when the men eat the cattle of Helios on the island of Thrunakia. They're warned before they get there to not eat that cattle. And we know that that cattle has not known generation. So they're not cattle the way we know. They don't come into being and pass out of being. They don't live and die that the cattle there are image of, it's like an archetype, a form of food. But they eat it in disobedience to what they've been told. So it was an eating problem that led to the destruction of the men. Something as ordinary as eating. I'm not making, I don't want to exaggerate this, I'm floored by it. When you watch all the adventures that these men go through and they come to this island of Thronachian and they're told not to eat these cattle and they eat the cattle and then die. It's over a matter. When Aeneas comes home, the, the event that signals their homecoming is has to do with eating. It's a very ordinary thing. We take eating for granted all the time. The interesting thing to me is we can't live without eating. Let's see any of us starve for two weeks and see how we do. We take eating for granted. I, th- I think what's going on behind this, mythically, if I can go there, I'm taking a stamp here, and jump in, any of you who want to jump in. I think what's, what's partly behind this, from a mythic perspective, if I can put it that way, is that we didn't get here on our own. We didn't create ourselves. Somebody created us so we owe our life to another. For us to live our lives without having a sense that we should give something back, that has to do with living, is an arrogance on our part. The one thing that sustains us is food. We can't live without it. And it's interesting to me that, 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 that both of these turns occur around the event of eating. To me, it's like a signal reminder that we're asked to restrain ourselves to give something back because that's the basis of our life. And if you look at America, I mean, we're, we're an overeating culture. We're so wealthy. You know, we just take eating for granted. What Homer and Virgil are making clear to us is that um, there's a danger around something as stupid, as simple, as ordinary as eating. We so take it for granted. I think the point is we shouldn't take it for granted. We can't live without it. We can't live without it. So it's interesting to me, here here it is again, this issue of eating comes up when you least expect it. Anyway, the the men realize their home. Um, The treaty is struck and immediately Juno sets Alecto into motion. Um, She's a dark, dark force on page 207 um, she infects she enters into Amata the wife and takes her over and then she does the same thing with um, Turnus Um, on page 208 without delay electa dripping venom deadly as the gorgons passed into latium first in the high hall of the Laurentian king she took her place on the still threshold of the Queen Amata burning already at the Trojans coming, because Amata didn't want her daughter to marry a foreigner, she wanted her to marry Turnus. Burning already at the Trojans coming, the plans for Turnus' marriage broken off. Amada tossed and turned with womanly anxiety and anger. Now the goddess plucked one of the snakes, her gloomy tresses, and tossed it at the woman, set it down, her bosom to her midriff, and her heart so that by this black reptile driven wild, she might disrupt her whole... I mean, what happens after that is rage. I'm not aware of another scene in literature before Christ comes that's so close to the demonic. Homer doesn't get close to this. She takes possession of her, and she does the same thing with Ternus. Um, she gets Turnus involved in the war, so he turns himself against the king, because he argues that his wife... His dowry has been taken from him. Um, on page 211, Electo takes the form of a priestess and she says to Turnus Turnus, can you bear to see so many efforts wasted, spilt like water, and your own rule made over to the Dardan colonists? I, how can I put that strongly enough? I'm going to put that strongly enough. I don't know I mean, forgive me if I'm offending anybody here. Let's say you're you belong to the Nord, the New England coastline and you belong to high society and your your sons and daughters have gone to Yale, you know something. and your daughter is in Yale and she's having dinner and she cut she meets this young guy from Turkey, let's say who's uneducated and they're attracted. Um, it would be a little bit like a mother saying, We've produced this lineage that you know generations who have been educated, and you're going to go out with this guy. It'll be something like that. I mean, you find your own. I'm trying. You know, I'm struggling, but that that sense of um, deserving, owing, and something that doesn't come up that leads to a contempt. So she's trying to appeal to Turnus's pride, that this is a some a, somebody a colonist. What would be even better? Let's just say you're in England before the Revolution. Better yet, England. You're in the aristocracy. You're in the English-stocracy. And somebody goes to the American colony, comes back from the colony with a friend. Let's say it's a girl who goes from England who's in the aristocracy. She visits America when it's still a colonial place before the Revolution. She comes back, and and the mother learns that... um, or you know, let's say it's a son. Let's say it's a son. The son comes back to this young girl who's a colonist. And she, she's thinking about, she's becoming involved in the American Revolution and going against the king. What would the mother's response be to her son? You know, you're going out with this colonist? And he's thinking, you know. And it's something along those lines. I mean, it's very ordinary. It's, it happens all the time. She comes and says, your own rule made over the darn and colonists? The king withholds your bride, withholds the dowry that you, t- that you fought and bled for. Go into danger and be laughed at for it. So the Amada is appealing to his pride everywhere. You're going to let this stand, and in his pride, he's going to become more and more angry. Um, he will go to war with the king. He'll go to war with the king and meanwhile Electo will go stir up the huntsmen. Ascanius is out hunting with his dogs and Electo gets the dogs um, riled up. Ascanius shoots a deer but the deer happens to belong to one of the um, huntsmen of the king and a young girl who has raised it and it sets off a war between the, the agrarian, the farmers and the landsmen and the Trojans. So on all fronts what just appeared like a promising beginning turns to war. Okay. Um, before we go there. Go back to page two eight for a second, can you? Two eight. Two eight. Okay. Alectos has entered Amada and and stirring these dark passions in her and um, this is what's said Um, these Trojan refugees father are they to take away Lavinia in marriage have you no pity for your daughter none for yourself no pity for her mother this so this is a mother speaking to her husband um, rebuking him because he's not doing what she wants him to do that he's relinquishing any claim that Turnus had on the daughter for this foreigner. Okay. No pity for her mother, I'm your wife, are you not feeling sorry for me? Um, no pity for her mother who will be left alone by the faithless man. Now listen to this, the rover going to sea at the first north wind with a girl for booty, was that not the way the Phrygian shepherd entered Lacedaemon? And carried Helen off to Troy for City. Does everybody see the connection there? Oh good. Wow. Ann, what it wow, good for you guys. Holy cow. Ann, go ahead, what is it? Sorry, unmute yourself. Can you unmute yourself?
2: This
1: foreigner has come in. She figures going to take our daughter and off, the, off they'll go just like Paris did uh, with Helen.
0: Good, good, good. Okay, I'm boy. I'm really good for you guys. Holy cow! Maybe I should be doing less. Maybe I. Good for you guys. <laughs> so at this point, Aeneas is being likened to Paris. Now the one of the important things to see here is that everybody here. Well, let me put. It, how well are they reading? How well are they twisting facts to fit their own agendas? Yeah? What they're doing is taking the situation with Aeneas and twisting it to fit what happened to lead to the Trojan War. So in one sense, they're going to justify the battles that are about to take place. Aeneas right now is being likened to Paris. And Turnus is going to make the same comparison. He's going to see him as a threat um, to his relationship with Lavinia. So in one sense both of them are going back, but they don't see that they're twist. Let me put it differently. The gods are involved with what's happening with Aeneas, yes? Everybody's clearing that. These people are turning things to fit the way they want to see when they don't correspond in fact to what's going on with the gods. They're misreading. Um... And it's going to make it darker. Um, on page, let's so, see.
1: So I, I have a question. Sure, go ahead. What? So what, what does it say that Turnus has to be more convinced? Because it sounds almost like um, he rebukes Electa when she comes in the form of the priestess. Right. At first, he's like, "What are you worried about? You know, it's your age, and you're just you're worrying about things you shouldn't be worrying about." So then, he has to possess him in order to enrage him because he initially wasn't enraged.
0: Um, Heather, do you have that? Um, okay, what's anybody respond to Heather's question? I think it's an excellent question. Anybody?
1: It's on page two o seven is where, where he responds to her, at the bottom of two o seven, and I have the bottom of two eleven, where he dismisses. Oh, maybe it's that. Oh yes, yes, yes. I think you're right. It is two eleven.
0: Yeah, it's two eleven. Yeah. Anybody respond? Heather, I think it's a really good question. It's it it's such it's so subtle, and that's why it's a really good question because it goes to a subtlety. It's just anybody. Here, let me read, because you've, you've taken us there. So the um, electo, entering this old withered priestess, um, comes to him to urge him into this battle, and his response at the bottom of the page is, in response to her, Your mind should be on the gods' images and on their shrines. Men will make war and peace as men should do. So he's dismissing her, exactly like you said. Now what does that tell us about Turnus? How do we, I guess the question asked is how do you read that? What how do what how do we understand what's going on? Because it's immediately after that that she becomes outraged, and terrifies him. So it takes an act of terror to finally take hold of him.
1: Motivate him.
0: Yeah, but but go back to that passage that I just read. What does it say about Turnus?
1: Maybe that he's a more reasonable. He, he's a more reasonable character, whereas we see Queen Amada... She's not reasonable at all to start with, so she's very easy to convince and yeah. to enrage. But he stands in opposition to that. He's, he's not so easily yeah. enraged. Yeah. And so she has to she has to completely terrify yeah, him Here. in order Here. to get him there.
0: Yeah. I I don't no. I don't think so. Um, what we see are two opposites. Um both of which are yeah. defined in terms of arrogance. Yeah. Um, okay. She's easily, I mean, she's susceptible to you. I mean you, but the fault with Turnus is that he's so arrogant, your mind should okay. be on the God's images on, That that atten- as you're a woman. pay attention to the gods. Let let us men handle war things. So what we see in Turnus is the arrogance of a man. Okay. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, she, he is as overweening in his arrogance as she is as a mother in hers
1: in her emotion
0: in the pride yes that that both of them illustrate a, an inordinate pride male and female she's she's showing it as a mother he's showing it as a warrior go mind your bit so what's his attitude towards the gods i mean answer that question heather uh
1: it's it seems it seems like he's um he doesn't care one way... Like, he's ambivalent? There's an ambivalent... Ambivalent? Tenetor, like baloney?
0: That. He scorns them. God, he just... It, it, I mean, that's an, that's an attitude... No. On the, your mind should be on the gods. I mean, you, go bother with the gods. I mean, he reminds me of the Cyclops. He, his attitude is just absolute contempt. And I think what we're showing... I mean, what Virgil's showing is... is that is the, both of those extremes... are susceptible to that rage... Because of the degree of the inordinate pride, both of them are far too proud. As a mother, as a warrior. That—that's what I mean. It's another way of showing the susceptibility of somebody. I mean, in our in our in our world, to something demonic. I mean, if you watch Electo go, it's um, it's it's frightening to watch. And I, it, what's amazing to me is we don't have to look around very far to find it. God, it's. You know, if you go on the news every day you're just you're watching images of it again and again and again and again. The the awful violence in the sense of being justified. Ahmad is absolutely convinced that she's justified in what she's doing. She's being a good mother. She wants and Turnus feels that he's absolutely justified. You know, go away, old woman. Mind your business with the God. It's like saying to the Yayas in the Orthodox Church, you know, go worship God. God, it's the contempt in both of them is They're like mere reversals of each other. I'm glad you had... Is that okay? Did that...
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad... It makes more sense, yeah. I'm so glad you took us there. Interesting, on page 219, um, now that the countries are at war, Virgil takes us to the catalog, the catalog, the epic catalog. If you remember the Iliad after the opening quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles, and there's this appeal to bring order, and Nestor steps forward and says, you've got it all wrong. Um, We're losing the war. The way to win it is to put everybody in their classes, and we'll find out who's doing what they shouldn't. It's just like a businessman saying, get things organized, and we'll find out who's not doing their job. It's It's exactly what a businessman does. And it's effective, but it it misses because he doesn't see that there's something more. It's what Achilles is going to learn in the ninth book. Are you all with me on this? Because you remember in the ninth <coughs> book when Agamemnon sends all his booty and Achilles says, such things I, I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance that a transcendent element comes in. So Nestor is right um, at that level but it's clear that there's a lot he doesn't see. And we're even gonna see that in the um, Odyssey when Telemachus visits him because we're gonna see him as a husband with his wife and we see even, we become even more aware of what's, it's that male pride, you know, that's, that's too taken with itself. Um, anyway, here at this point, because the armies are lining up for war, Virgil gives us the catalog, the epic catalog. Except in this case, it's not the ships, it's the armies, the various peoples who are going to... And I only want to call attention to one of them. There there are a number. I put it on my notes for you guys, if if you look at the notes. But on page 225, he says, Besides all these, Camilla of the Volscian people came. She's an image of an Amazon. She belongs to that tribe of women who hate men. I mean, it's present today. You can see parts of it in the feminist movement. She belongs to a group of women who hate men, who want to be brave and warlike. And um, Virgil holds her up um, for her heroism. She's a remarkable warrior. When the the wars take place, she's going to kill men right and left. She's an extraordinary warrior. So the catalog of the peoples ends with her, besides all these, Camellia of the Volscians, her squadron gallant in bronze, a warrior girl whose hands were never deft at distaff or wool basket skills of minerva she was a hard and trained to take the shock of war or to outrace the winds in running if she ran full speed over the tips of grain a she would not even have bruised an ear to see her men and women pouring from the fields from houses thronged her passageway and stared wide eye with admiration at the style of royal purple robing her smooth shoulders then at the brooch that bound her hair in gold now notice that Virgils like every great Shakespeare, got Shakespeare, Dante, Shakespeare, they could not have done whatever they did. Remember that description, the brooch that bound her gold that is she's she's feminine, she's a warrior. She is she runs as if her feet don't even touch the ground. People watch on in amazement. She's an extraordinary um, woman with her physical prowess, but she there's something feminine to her and then at the brooch her, her Brooch that bound her hair in gold just remember that image because it'll come in later um in in book eight um sorry escania or i mean see aeneas prepares to leave now to go to evander to ask for his assistance to to establish a treaty with him to get help to fight this war and um um when he when he gets there um, the arcadians are this is so crucial the arcadians are involved in rituals in honor of hercules on page 233 by chance that day the arcadian king paid honor to hercules great son of amphitryon and to the other gods in festival outside the town in a the grove they because the story behind the myth, the story, the legend behind this, is that um, Hercules defeated this monster bull. He goes, we, all, we go on to get the story here on the next on, um, on couple pages of this monster beast human figure, Cacus, who steals cattle from the Arcadians on page 237. One of the oxen, as um, Cacus was taking it away, mooed bellowed, and Hercules heard it and went to the cave. He couldn't move the rock from the front of the cave, so went to the top of it and pulled out a, a boulder and then went down in the bottom of it. The description of the battle that takes place is on 238. It's a dark, belching, smoky, fiery battle, but he finally defeats Cacus and brings him out at the bottom of page 238, but gazed long at the dreadful eyes, the face, the shaggy, bristling chest of the half-beast, his gorgeous fiery breath put out. Since then this feast is held, and younger men are glad to keep the memory of the day. Now, the important, one important thing to remember, they're honoring Hercules because he saved this people from this monstrous beast. In some ways, it recalls the world of the Minotaur. It's like a beast-human. That once again we're being shown the way in which humans can become monstrous in what they do. We can look around at us, watch the violence, watch the video, goddamn. Sorry, watch a video of a guy walking up to a cop in a car, sitting there and shooting. No compunction, nothing human, fully justified, killing a person. Um, so we're we we are surrounded by images of this something monstrous in us as human beings. The important thing that I want to underline here is Hercules. They're honoring Hercules because of his importance, and they're trying to hold him in memory because of the strength that they take from him, because he's the one who defeated this monster beast figure. Hercules, in the ancient world, um, was the twin of another brother who was fully human. Hercules' birth was human and divine. So he's the closest thing to Christ that we have in the ancient world. And all the Christian fathers, early fathers, recognized that. He was the only being out of the Olympian world that was dual in nature, both divine and human. Now don't forget that. Because most modern writers are like, um, I can't remember, Alan Tate's wife. Carolyn Gordon. Gordon wrote stories of, um, based on that myth. So the once again, this ancient world had these intimations of Christ. This is the guy who defeated this, this monster, half-monster, half half-human. Monster, half so when Aeneas um, comes, they're honoring that, that hero on page... 2.30 um, look at two. let's see um, he knows he's home. We saw that when he comes home. Um, he's told to go to um, Evander to ask for help. And when he comes um, he meets Evander. Go to page 240. Sorry.
1: Has he seen the cell
0: with the pig? No, he's about to. They've just finished the rituals and, and we get the backstory. And then on page 240, Evander takes Aeneas and shows him the layout, the countryside. 240. Um, the King Evander, founder, unaware of Rome's great citadel, said. Now remember, this is 1200. Virgil's writing 70. So all of Rome, the Colosseum, the Capitol, the Rock, the Tarpinian Rock, all of it's there. So all of you got to imagine that. If you've not gone online, try to go online and just picture Rome. Look at, look at its great architecture, okay? But this is Evander 1200 years before. All of history is yet to unfold. Vander takes Aeneas on page 240 These woodland places once were homes of focal f- local fauns and nymphs together with a race of men that came from tree trunks from hard oak they had no way of settled life no arts of life no skill at yoking oxen gathering provisions practicing husbandry they came out of nature they were agrarian rooted in the earth making their living there they had no arts were not in a village We're not in a town. Got their food from oaken boughs and wild game hunted down. In their first time out of Olympian heaven, Saturn came here in flight from Jove in arms, and exile from a kingdom law. Remember, in the Olympian world, one generation overthrew another, Saturn is an exile. Let me put it more strongly. He's a fugitive. The book begins. Sing, O O Muse, of that fugitive Aeneas running from Judah. This book is about a fugitive. He's lost his home. He's going to a new land. He doesn't even know where it's going to be. If America was, I, I mean, I, I'm not for open borders. I, I mean, we've always made a place for immigrants, but they had to come in lawfully. I just don't, I, people can't break laws. But America is fundamentally a country for refugees, fugitives. That's at the core of our being. Here we learn from Evander that the country came into existence when one of the gods came as a fugitive. He was in exile. He was overthrown, which we know periodically happened in that world. He brought these unschooled men together from the hills where they were scattered, gave them laws, and chose the name of Latium from his latency of safe concealment in this countryside. This is crucial for the understanding of Rome. Saturn came as an exile. Christ was here in exile. His home was with God. He says, the Son of God, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was in exile here. He was trying to help us go back home. Our home is with God where we lost it. Saturn was here. When he came, he gave the men laws, taught them things, and gave them the name Lachim. This line that I just read. And chose the name of Latium from latency of safe concealment in this countryside. So Latium means something's being hidden. It's concealed. It's latent. It's there. It's not on the surface. But that's what Latium is. Okay. In his reign were the golden centuries, men tell of it still. So peaceful he ruled... Till gradually a meaner, tarnished age. Then they lost their name over time because greed came in, people did what they did. And finally another time came and Evander took rule and produced a good people because he's a good person. Page 241. Then he showed the wood that Romulus would make a place of refuge. Romulus, one of the founders, remember the two brothers who founded Rome, would make a place of refuge. Then the grotto called the Leprechaun, under the cold crag, named the Arcadian fashion, after Lycaean pan. And then as well he showed the sacred wor- wood of Argiletum, Argus's death, and took oath by it, telling of a guest, Argus, put to death. From there he led to our Tarpanian site and capital, all golden now in those days, tangled wild with underbush. But awesome even then, A strangeness there filled country hearts with dread and made them shiver at the wood and rock. So Virgil's looking at this. I hope you're hearing this. He's looking at it in terms of sights that he's familiar with. You know, the capital. All these other things. But he's seeing it in its pristine native character before civilization began to impose itself on this Arca- arcadian this natural beauty this wonder so we see behind rome in its ancient beginnings the role that saturn this primeval forest this arcadian nature these men who live close to nature who had this good king and virgil's um, um aeneas has seen it he's witnessing it it's at this point that the at this point that the two men make a pact and um, Evander tells um, Aeneas, well, excuse me, to get help um, because they've been under attack um, from Turnus and other people as well. Hold on for a second. Um. um on page 246 he says greatest of Trojan captains never while you live shall I consider Troy to be conquered and her kingdom gone but though our name is great our power is slight to strengthen you in war go down no I plan for you a league with a great host an army rich in many kingdoms go down again no long way from here men live in a city of um, Agila built of ancient stone the Lydians Renowned in war in the old days settled there on the Etruscan ridges. And for years the city flourished till an arrogant king. Think about the importance of good kings and bad kings in this. Um, all the way through it. Till an arrogant king, Mezentius, ruled it barbarously by force. How shall I tell of carnage beyond telling? Beastly crime. Beastly crimes. There's Cacus again and there's the Minotaur. Both those monstrous figures beastly crimes this tyrant carried out. How do I tell of them? Requite them, gods, on his own head and on his children." Now remember that curse because Mezentius' child, son, is going to have a major place in the wars in just a chapter off. Okay, And their children. He would even, he would couple carcasses with living bodies as a form of torture, hand to hand and face to face. He made them suffer corruption, oozing gore and slime in that wretched embrace and a slow death. But at long last the townsmen, sickening of his unholy ways, took arms and laid siege to the man, man in his house." So he he left and he took refuge in Rutulian territory with Turnus. So he's been an ally of Turnus, and the Rutulians, with Mezentius and Turnus, have been attacking the Arcadians. Now I want to be clear before we go on because the battles are going to get a little bit confusing, but is that clear? Aeneas, is left. Aeneas made a pact with Latinus, the king, and then all this trouble started because of Electo and Amata and Turnus. Turnus is going to war with the Latins. Aeneas was sent to get help from the Arcadians, um, and he's told um, here um, by Evander to go seek out help from um, these Lydians because their king was a vicious king. To punish people he would put them together, tie them up so that they would corrode, decay into each other. It was an inhumed, torturous, awful scene. The people finally rose up against him and he had to flee and he took refuge with Turnus, so he's joined with Turnus. So now you've got the Rutulians against the Arcadians. Okay. And Evander is saying, "Get help from the Lydians, because they're at war, and they will help you." And what we learn in in um, in a moment is that the um, is that the Lydians have been. A, this is crucial. The Lydians have been hesitant to get into war because they've been waiting for an event that a soothsayer had prophesied, that somebody from a foreign land would come to lead them. Now just think for a moment about all the things that are beginning to converge, all the prophecies that led Aeneas here. um, um, When he he set off to go to Evander, um, he was told that the sign that he would be at home would be the sow and 30 piglets as he starts up the river, he sees the vision, it's confirmed. So there are numerous prophecies telling of this event. Meanwhile, Italy's at war with itself, the the Rutilians are at war with the Lydians um, and with the Arcadians, Evander's people. And Evander is telling Aeneas to get more help, go to the Lydians, align with them. They've been waiting for somebody, so, it's as if multiple realities are beginning to converge. So, this is stunning. Show me something like that going on in Homer, Heliopodacy. Things are happening from multiple perspectives that are all. So, and they, they all seem unrelated. They're absolutely outside of what's going on in Aeneas. Completely outside. And yet, when you start putting this large picture together, it's hard to look at it without being amazed because you're saying, holy cow. All this stuff is going, it's a little bit like knowing, here let me, if I can back off for a second, it's a little bit like living in our families, and knowing we've got problems. Our spouses, our children, grandparents, you know, who knows what goes on. And we're aware of problems in our world, but we're pretty much focused on our family and our relationships. And we're not even aware, and there is no way to be aware, that something's going on, halfway across the country, or two cities away, or next door, and every one of them somehow is working to bring us together in some ways we don't see. That's what Virgil's showing us. That even though Aeneas has been um, given this divinely appointed task, he's got to found Rome, he's got his mind there, he comes to Evander, Evander tells him to go to, um, I'm sorry, he comes to um, Titus. Tinus tells him to go to Evander. Evander tells him to go to Lydia to get these helps. And suddenly, all these other peoples are getting involved, and it's hard to read it without realizing something is going on in this larger world none of them seem to be aware of. And they're all pointing to this one thing, the founding of Rome. So he will set off, and um, I'm not going to go through it now, but um, when he sets off on his way, he's given all these horses by Vander. so he rides off to, to the Lydians to talk with them. And when he stops to rest at one of the points where he has to rest on this journey to, to go to the Lydians, Venus comes to him with his armor. She's going to give him armor. It's exactly that, like that moment when, remember, Thetis um, had Hephaestus make armor for Achilles. We talked about that when we did the Iliad. Remember on the Iliad, there were the two cities of men. There was the ocean, um, all that was going on. On the shield. On the shield. Um, what's going on here on, on Aeneas' shield will be a prophecy, of a foretelling of most of the major events in Roman history. Now stop and think about that because Achilles never sees the future. Aeneas got his calling from his father in the underworld, Right? Here, he's being given a shield, and he's actually being shown a future. He has no clue, none, what all that's going to be, but there it is. And Venus says to him, be not afraid. Do not be afraid. Take all this stuff on, even though though he's overcome with wonder. She says, don't be afraid. Take all this on. So that's where we are. Um, When we start on next week, what I'd like to do is is pick up here. I'd like to look a little bit more closely at um, Venus's shield. I wanted to get to the next book. In the next book, we've got two Trojans. um, What's going to happen while Aeneas is away at Evander? Turnus is going to attack the fortress, where the Romans, when they first landed, they built a fortress, walls. Aeneas told all the men to stay there while he went to see Evander and um, Turnus is going to attack the fortress. Ascanius is there, his son. So Turnus and his men are going to attack Aeneas, his men, while Aeneas is away. Is away. Um, when the attack begins, the, the men tell two of the Trojans to go scouting to see if they can't get to Aeneas. Now, m- most of you are probably not going to remember the Iliad, but in the middle of an Iliad, in the 10th book, when the Greeks were under siege, they told Aeneas and Diomedes to go out and scout the Trojan. If you remember, they went on that night raid, and what they did is just butcher people. And if you remember, they, they met this man, um, this Trojan called Dolan, and they told him if he gave them the information they wanted, they let him free, and Dolan told them what was going on, and they cut his head off, and the head was still talking when it was, I don't know if you remember that, but... So, in the Iliad, you've got Aeneas or sorry um, Odysseus and Diomedes going on a night raid that was all of book ten a whole of book ten and all they do is bring back booty. here you've got two men going to seek help from Aeneas because their fortress and Aeneas's son are under attack when they go out um, these are the two men who were involved in the ship race, remember, in the games, in the funeral games, that the ships were racing, and I told you that um, in the races and all that took place, that um, that um, I think it was Nysus, who was the older, who tripped the man who was in front so that Eurelius could win or come in ahead. Beca- and they were described as lovers, they loved each other. Nysus is the older one. Um, the men are going to ask for volunteers to go get Aeneas because they need help. They're under attack. Nysus stepped up, and because Eurelius loves him, he's the young one he offers to go with. So these two men who love each other dearly are going to go on this night raid. It's what corresponds to Book 10, Iliad. Except here they're going to get help, and what happens is Eurelius gets caught. Foolishly, he puts on a helmet. Well, I don't know. He puts on a helmet, and in the moon... The moon gleam hits it, and just as a, f- a force of men are returning, they catch wind of it and they capture him. And I'm not going to tell you what happens if you haven't read it. You've got to read it, um, be- because it's once again Virgil taking something from Homer and absolutely changing it. So we've got. I, I don't want to spend much time. I wanted to get to it tonight, but we don't have time. So next week we'll look at um, the the shield the armor that Venus gives her son and how it's different. We'll just touch on it. We'll look briefly at the night raid with Eurelius and Nisus. And then I'd, I'd, I'd like to try to finish. I'm not sure that we will. T- t- you know, 10, 11, and 12. It it may be too much. I'll try to finish it. If we don't, we'll finish it the week before. But all of you know now, right, to get Boethius' Consolation because that's the book we're going to take up next. So next week we'll see if we can finish the Aeneid I'm not sure that we will if, if we don't finish it next week we'll take half the class the following we can start with for sure we should be able to do that okay so any questions or comments before we leave on what's going on and how different this world is from Homer's what's happening what Virgil's doing with this strange city coming into being amazing work this is our faith. This is what's behind our faith, this extraordinary thing. So
2: no? we'll be online and next week, Bob? Uh,
0: sorry?
2: We'll be online next week.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna, sorry Sue. God, thanks for doing that. Um, I've got to talk with Tim and I haven't. It's just what happened to me last week really threw us off and it's been a it's been a not an easy week for us. Um, I'm not planning to go anywhere for the next several weeks, so let's just plan to meet. Um, I, I think all, a lot of you have reservations, and yeah. I have a lot of respect for that. I mean, all of you are you know, being very careful, and I don't want to play with that. Um, I want to talk with Tim. I suspect that we'll go on this way for a while. Um, it's not my preference, but it, it may be the best thing to do, so... At this point, let's just plan. We're, we're going ahead for the next several weeks. I'm not going to. I'll let you know. And right now at this point, I, I don't see, I can't foresee changing anything, it, you know, right away. This is, too many people are guarded and um, too much is going on. And, and, and I want to check with you guys. I mean, I'm going to ask you for personal responses before we do anything anyway. So. so for the next several weeks, be at home, be at home. And if you guys are eating dinner, if you guys are eating dinner and drinking wine and you're not sharing, I have nothing, nothing but bad words to say for all of you guys. God.
1: Take not care of yourself this week.
2: Be good to yourself.
0: Yeah, Sue. So I'm I honestly I'm, I'm really grateful for that. It's really funny. Just I'm honestly I'm I'm so humbled. i I just was put to I was actually in tears. It um, <laughs> I I pushed a little bit too hard most of my life, so it's, you know, but... A little bit? (laughs) Did you hear Suzanne? A little bit? God. Um, I am working really hard, really hard at stepping back. So thanks for the encouragement. All all I can tell you is I will do it. I will keep trying. So thanks for the good words. You You guys behave, all of you. Stay safe, okay?
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay. Bye bye Bob. We'll be printing for you. Go ahead. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do?